Jesus here. It's so great to see you all here, especially if it's your first time. We're so glad that you've joined us. I want to start by asking you a question, uh, which is, how do you get accepted by people who matter to you? Uh, one of the really early dates I went on with Zoe was to go to Putt-Putt. Uh, this is before we were officially dating, and I thought this would be a really fun, great idea for a date. Uh, no stress, uh, enough holes to kind of talk and hang out. I, I thought I'd be pretty good at it, so I could try to impress her with my Putt-Putt skills. And I kind of thought you could do that thing where you show someone how to putt, and it's a little bit like you're holding hands, and so I thought I'd get a little sneaky hand. I, I thought, this is a great idea. What a great date. Uh, about five holes in, I realized I'd made a massive mistake. See, this isn't a fun, stress-free date. This is one of my first ever opportunities to show to Zoe that I have all the qualities that she could ever want or need to have an acceptable or excellent boyfriend. Or this was the moment when she would find out that I don't have what it takes, that I don't stack up. And it turned out Zoe is weirdly good at putt-putt. I thought, if she beats me, then it's all over. And so in my head, I thought, this round of putt-putt is my one chance to show my skill, my ability, my strength, and my speed, that, that I can be competitive and yet humble in winning, that I can be funny and yet serious when I need to be. It's my chance to prove that I can be a good husband and a good father. There was some pressure. My chance to show I could be an acceptable and excellent boyfriend. Luckily for me, Zoe's back injury significantly flared up while we were playing. <laughs> and so I beat her very easily. And I got the bonus points of being able to show that I'm a compassionate person who can care for her and beat her at the same time. And so in the end, she did accept me, uh, and I'm very thankful for that. Uh, but we have that kind of experience all the time, right, where we want to be accepted by someone, and we sort of figure out, what is the thing that I have to do to get accepted by this person or this group of people? Uh, maybe you feel like you need to be more fun, more outgoing, that you can make new friends and be accepted by a new group of people. Uh, maybe you feel like you need to be more nice and more respectful, that you might be accepted by your mother-in-law. Maybe you feel like you need to be more hardworking, that you might be accepted by your boss get accepted for a promotion. But what about when it comes to God? What makes someone acceptable to him? What kind of person is acceptable to the God of the universe? Being accepted by people is good. It's great. It's an important thing. But there is nothing more important than being accepted by the God of the universe. Because nothing has bigger consequences, both positively and negatively. It's right that we, we worry about and, uh, things that are important to us, uh, the things that have the biggest impact on us, that we stress about those things. Having a job that you don't hate, it matters. Uh, having friends and family that you love, having enough money so that you can eat and live and enjoy. But the thing that will have the biggest impact on your life is whether you are accepted by the God who made you. It'll change your life now. And God says that heaven and hell are on the line for eternity, depending on whether you're accepted by him or not. And so it's a massive question, right? It's the question. How do you get accepted by God? Well, in this part of the Bible we're looking at, Jesus tells a story about two guys who are going to the temple to pray. 
And this story, Jesus says, will teach us how you can be acceptable to God. It gets to the very heart of the Christian faith. And as we celebrate tonight, Tilly and Georgia and Julian and Aiden getting baptized, we'll see the heart of their faith. We'll see the heart of what they are on about in their lives. That's a great passage. It's great that you're here tonight. Let's have a look at it. Uh, Jesus introduces us to two guys, and as Cooper said, and slightly stole my thunder, one is the very best of society, and one is the very worst. Uh, if you're in your Bibles, have a look at sentence number 10 with me. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I get. This first guy we meet is a Pharisee. Uh, Now, the Pharisees were a small group within the uh, Jewish community, and they were kind of like the religious elites. Uh, They were particularly known for taking God and his law very seriously. Uh, They tried to do whatever God asked, and then more. However good of a person you think you are, the Pharisees were better. Right Now, you might be the person who pays for your Netflix account and your Disney Plus account, and you let people use it, and you don't even rub it in their face or bring it up that often. You, you might think you're pretty good, but the Pharisees were better than you. They, they did even more things. They did things like fasting, did you see? The Bible said that uh, Old Testament Jews, they needed to fast on one day a year. But the Pharisees, they decided they would fast two days every single week just to show their devotion to God. I don't know if I can go even one night without a snack after dinner. I don't know about you. They fast twice a week. It's incredible. And they were told to give 10% of some of their things away to God as part of their devotion to him. But the Pharisees decided they would give away 10% of every single thing down to the minutiae of what they own, down to figuring out how many leaves of mint they have on their mint tree. They might give 10% of that. The Pharisees took God and his law very seriously. They tried to do whatever God asked and then more. They were good, really good, better than you. If anyone could be confident that they would be accepted by God, he was a Pharisee, right? And then we meet a tax collector. Now, tax collectors were the opposite of the Pharisees. They were about as bad of a person as you could be. I just want you to imagine something. I know there's some... uh, no, we're good. I want, you to, I want you to imagine Australia got invaded, right? It's hard to picture, but imagine Australia got invaded, and imagine that that enemy nation then ruled us for life. They were our rulers, and they ruled us very unfairly, very harshly. Now, if you can imagine that, you would think that this would particularly be a time for Aussies to stick together, right? To have one another's backs. But imagine if the person sitting next to you offered to work for the enemy, and not just any work, they offered to collect taxes from us for our enemies. And when they came for the money, they charged you way more than what they should have. They ripped you off, stole your money so that they could get rich while working for the enemy. Can you imagine that? How un-Australian would that be? How would you feel about people who did that? 
That is exactly what a tax collector was doing in the first century. They weren't Aussies, they were Jewish. Working for the Romans, collecting taxes from and cheating their own people, feeding on the misery and misfortunes of their brothers and sisters. Awful. They were the scum of the earth. A Pharisee is about as good as someone gets, and a tax collector is about as bad as anyone could be. Now, when they both come to the temple to pray, who do you think Jesus promises heaven to? Which one do you think would be acceptable before God? It's obvious, right? I don't even have to ask you. Let's see what Jesus says. Sentence number 14. Have a look at that with me. I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. Now, to be justified, it's a legal term. It means to be okay before the law. And in this case, okay before God, the judge. And Jesus is saying that only one of these guys goes home okay before God. And it's not the Pharisee. It's the tax collector. You know, what? We're kind of meant to feel the shock of it, right? It's not right. There's a remarkable person, someone called Palabi Gosh. I've got a photo of her. She has spent her life rescuing women and children from trafficking. It's estimated she's rescued about 10,000 women and children as a result of her work. She's an incredible person. Jesus is saying it's like Palabi came to church and went home not right with God. But then a person who's stolen millions of dollars through online scams, preying on the old and lonely, they come to church and then they go home right with God. How can that possibly be? It just feels wrong, doesn't it? Sentence 9 helps us with this. Have a look at sentence 9 with me. He, that's Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. This kind of helps us get what's going on. See, what we have is a proud man and a humble man. And Jesus is directly challenging those who are proud and confident in themselves, people who think that they're good, people who think that they're good enough for God and think they're better than others. He's challenging them. You see it in the way that the two people prayed, right? Did, did you notice how the Pharisee prayed? It's all about himself. It's about how good he is, especially when he compares himself to others. Did you notice he talks about himself five times in two sentences? That's a lot for a prayer. He's talking about how good he is. Have a look again. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. See how he comes to God? He comes to God confident in himself and his own goodness because he thinks he performs better than those who are around him. Now, pride and self-confidence before God can come in all kinds of forms, right? It can be like the Pharisees, religious, right? I know the rules. I've worked really hard to keep them. I'm good enough because I've done enough. That's how every other religion approaches God, right? I'm good enough 
because I've done enough. But pride and self-righteousness can also come in non-religious forms, right? Where you just do life assuming that you'll be okay with God. Maybe you've never thought about it that much. Maybe you haven't. But you figure that you're good, it probably outweighs the bad, right? And so you'll be fine. You're at least better than the people around you. Quietly confident that your own performance, your own merit, that'll get you through. Is that you? But the tax collector, he is very aware of his own failure, isn't he? Just notice his body language as he prays. Sentence 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The tax collector deeply knows that he's completely unworthy before God. He's not just depressed about himself. He knows the truth about himself, that he is a sinner coming before a perfect God. He doesn't deceive himself by promising God, God, I'll do better next time, I promise. Give me another chance. He does the only thing he can. He asks God for mercy. I'm going to need help for a second. Alex, can you come up for a minute, mate? Uh, I'm going to ask to come up. Has anyone ever played the game Mercy before? Uh, I figured I'd pick the easiest target in our church to beat. Um, come on up, mate. So the game of Mercy works like this, is that you grab hands and you lock hands with someone else. And the point of the game is, once you sign up to play, you sign up to put your body on the line, right? And the point of the game is you're meant to rip the other person's fingers back as hard as you can, and then the other person, if they start to lose, cry out for mercy... And if the other person gives you mercy, they don't finish you off and break all ten fingers, which I'm sure won't happen. But let's, let's give it a go. Okay, so mercy, ready? Hands up. All right. This is going to go well. Don't worry. <laughs> all right. Three, two, one. Go. Wow, mercy, mercy, mercy. Whoa. Okay, well done. Give us a round of applause. Go grab a seat, mate. Woo-hoo. Okay. That was legit. When you sign up to play the game Mercy, right, you sign up to the consequences. If you lose, the other person gets to inflict punishment on you. That's what you deserve. But you can cry out for mercy, and if they give it to you, you don't get what you deserve. In fact, you get what you don't deserve. That's the point of mercy. You know what you deserve, and yet ask that you wouldn't get it. And in Alex's mercy, he didn't crush all ten of my fingers. See, why does God accept one person and not the other? What was the issue with the Pharisee and the tax collector? Well, the Pharisee, he did what we're all tempted to do, right? Which is to rate ourselves by measuring horizontally, right? Compared to other people. Instead of vertically, in relation to God. Our horizontal comparison, it can blind us to the horizontal reality. Because, of course, the Pharisee, he's way better than the tax collector, right? By miles. And yet it didn't help him. Because the measure of goodness isn't against the person next to you. The measure is God himself. People all over the world are pinning their hope on being statistically better than average better than the person next to you, 
good enough before God. Did you know 80% of men think that they're above average in sport? Doesn't really work, right? Most people think that they're better, 80%, we think we're better drivers too. 80% of guys think they're above average in drivers. 80%, I don't know why we always think that. Most people think that they're better than average. Now, I played a lot of cricket in my life, and so people assume that I can throw a ball a long way. Uh, but I've actually torn a bunch of the cartilage out of my shoulder, and so I can't hardly throw that far at all. Most of you would probably beat me. I know there's a couple of one-year-olds at the back I could probably beat. That's about it. Now, even though some people can throw a ball a really long way when you compare it to others, when we measure up to what God asks of us, what his standard is, his standard is perfect. It's like he's asking us to throw a ball from here to Africa. At that point, it doesn't matter how good you are at throwing. There's just no way you can get there. God's standards are too high. And that's where the Pharisee got it wrong. And it's where the tax collector got it right. The tax collector doesn't go looking for someone who's worse than him. So he can point out that he's better. The the tax collector, he sees himself rightly in light of God. In all God's perfection. He recognizes he has no excuse. There's nothing he can do. He doesn't try to highlight the things that's good about him. You know, when I go to Macca's and they ask me if I want to round up for charity, I sometimes do that. No, his approach is simple and profound. He says, have mercy on me, a sinner. Please don't give me what I deserve, the punishment of my sin. And that one goes home accepted by God. Now, how is that fair? Have you wondered that? How is that fair? Well, to be honest, it's not, right? The thing is, we either have to stand before God on our own merit, clutching at looking at other people around and hoping we're better than them, hoping that we can throw a ball all the way to Africa, or we can stand before God and plead for mercy, trusting in Jesus. See, Jesus promises that all who plead for mercy can be forgiven and know that they are accepted by God. It's incredible. You know how we can know that? It's because as Jesus is telling this very story, he's walking. He's walking to the cross. He's heading straight for the place where he knows that he will die to take the right anger of our sin on himself. The sin that we deserve. Jesus is a little bit like a stunt double at this point, right? He steps into the danger and wears it on himself so that he can offer mercy to those who realize they have no hope on their own. See, the tax collector has done exactly what God wants us to do which is give up and ask for help. Not give up doing good, but give up trying to be accepted by God on our own merits, by our own goodness. Give up thinking that just because you can throw better than others, that you can have confidence in yourself before God. It won't justify you before God. It doesn't qualify you for heaven. You need to know You are deeply a sinner before God who is not right with him. 
God's standard of goodness is too high no matter how good you are. You can't throw a ball to Africa. The key thing is this. Heaven is not for good people. They don't exist. Heaven is for forgiven people who see the reality and ask God for mercy. There's a great danger, I think, for people who are good, people who are able, people who are successful. I think there's actually a danger for us in the Australian kind of dream, right? You know that dream where you you set yourself up for life? Uh, We work hard, get the degree, get the job, make the money, get the promotion, enjoy life then with your family. It's a dangerous dream because smart, driven, able, successful, good people are in danger of relying on themselves. Well, you think you can do anything if you set your mind to it. The reality is the better that things go for you, the less you are likely to rely on God. When it comes to be accepted by God, we need to stop relying on ourselves and our good things. And we need to start relying on God and His mercy. Two things to finish. First thing is, are you right with God? If you met him tonight, would you be accepted by him? There's no question more important in life. Where do you stand? And how would you know? How would you know if you're accepted by God? Well, if you listen to uh, Aidan and George's testimony, and we're going to hear the other two in a second, if you listen to their stories, you'll pick up on it, right? Did you notice that they didn't talk about what they've done to be right with God? They've talked about what Jesus has done, that he's done everything to make them right with him. They recognize that they don't stack up, and so they call out to Jesus for mercy. And you can call out to Jesus any time that you want. Do it tonight. And you can experience forgiveness and mercy and be accepted by God into his kingdom in heaven forever. You just have to ask him. It's a wonderful thing. The last thing. When you trust in Jesus, who's done everything for you, then you can live the Christian life from a place of unqualified approval. It frees you from the need to prove yourself from the inside. I don't know if you feel this, but in so much of life, we feel secure, right? Insecure. We try to live up to a standard that we've set or in a way in which others will accept us or we try to outdo the people around us so that we feel good about ourselves. It's a huge pressure. We feel so insecure. But knowing that you are accepted that you're loved and secure from outside of yourself, before you've done anything. That what matters is what Jesus has done, not what you do. It means you can live every day confident and secure, knowing that you are deeply loved by the one who matters most. Incredible. It's freeing, it's life-giving and life-changing. And it's only possible through Jesus' death. You can try the thing where you just decide to not care what anyone thinks uh, 
Our world says you'll be happy if you can just manage that. You'll be satisfied. The problem is that we do care what other people think or, or that it doesn't last very long. And even if we manage to not care about what others think for a bit, we care so much about what we think of ourselves, it kind of cancels out. It's only when you are deeply secure in, that you're deeply loved and accepted by the one who matters most, the one whose opinion is the only one that matters of you. When you're loved and accepted by him, then you can be truly free and secure. I'm a rotten sinner, but I've received great mercy. And so I can wake up and have a bad day, and I'm still perfectly loved by God my Father, perfectly secure. And I can wake up and have a great day, and I'm still perfectly loved by my Heavenly Father, perfectly secure. It removes fear and uncertainty. It means we can live radically different lives for Jesus. We can serve Jesus with all we've got, not out of fear, but out of joy. Knowing that every day I stand before my Father who loves me, the final verdict already given, not guilty, forgiven, it makes the good news of Jesus incredibly liberating. And it's the only way that any of us can be accepted by God. What great news that is. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And I tell you, this man went home justified. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your deep mercy. Even though we fall so far short of you and your goodness, that you would love us, that you would send your son to die for us, so that instead of giving us what we deserve, we can have what we don't deserve. Forgiveness, mercy, freedom, eternal life with you in heaven. Father, help us to know that truth deeply and love it. We pray this in Jesus' sake. Amen.